Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Stephen Jenkins, the director of the just-opened Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Bob Dylan Center serves to educate, motivate, and inspire visitors to engage their own capacity as creators. While the center is anchored by a permanent exhibit on the life and work of Bob Dylan, it also offers additional exhibits, public programs, performances, lectures, and publications through which it aims to foster a conversation about the role of creativity in our lives. As the primary public venue for the Bob Dylan Archive Collection, the center offers curated exhibits pulled from the priceless collection of more than 100,000 items spanning Dylan's career, including handwritten manuscripts, notebooks and correspondence, films, videos, photographs and artwork, along with memorabilia, personal documents, unreleased studio and concert recordings, musical instruments, and many other items. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please follow and share. And now on to my conversation with Stephen Jenkins, the director of the Bob Dylan Center. Hello, Stephen Jenkins, and welcome to Making Media Now. Hello, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. So you are the director of the Bob Dylan Center that has just opened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So my first two questions are, why Tulsa, Oklahoma? Oklahoma. And um, why a center and not a museum? And tell me what you see as the difference. Sure thing. Well, uh, as to why Tulsa, um, I I agree that on on first blush, it doesn't seem like perhaps the most natural home uh, for a Bob Dylan center. Uh, Dylan being from Hibbing, Minnesota, of course, and perhaps being uh, more associated with New York, where he spent so much of his uh, formative years uh, during his early musical career. Uh, But uh, Dylan really likes the vibe of our city. 
Uh, he had come out here for a couple of visits. Um, he got to know the folks behind the George Kaiser Family Foundation. This is a very important institution here in Tulsa. George Kaiser is the patron saint of Tulsa, if you will, um, who has made a lot of very wonderful things happen in town, initially investing very heavily in early childhood education, uh, with an eye on equity across every sort of, you know, uh, nonsensical line, uh, and, and then through civic enhancement uh, in arts and culture. So the Kaiser Foundation about eight years ago was able to acquire the Woody Guthrie archives and open the Woody Guthrie Center. That is here now. It's been a very popular attraction for about eight years in Tulsa's arts district, which is a very thriving area now. So and when it came, a, there's an element of kindred spirits there. Guthrie well, well, and certainly, Dylan. certainly. So uh, when when time came uh, for Dylan to reveal the fact that he had, in fact, been saving troves of materials over all these decades, uh, with, you know, there had been rumors about this, that he's holding on to every scrap of paper, but no one really knew for sure. Uh, but he started to make some noise about wanting to find a home for what had indeed been in this collection he'd been amassing. And um, the George Kaiser Family Foundation made some uh, some inquiries and, and got to know Dylan and, and, and his team. Uh, and a series of conversations started. Uh, there certainly was a kinship there with Woody Guthrie. And Dylan did come and visit the Woody Guthrie Center here and by all accounts was impressed with what he saw. He also responded very positively to the fact that we are on Native American. American land, of course, and that cultural institutions here in Tulsa, notably the Gilcrease Museum, have done quite a bit to preserve and exhibit Native American art. Uh, this same museum also has crucial documents of Americana, including the Emancipation Proclamation, the Declaration of Independence. All of these things live in Tulsa, and I think it was that mix and then just the vibe of the city, what, what Dylan recently called the hum of the heartland hmm. that seemed to appeal to him. And to our great good fortune, he has entrusted us with this voluminous archive uh, with the idea that we would build a home for it uh, to be able to uh, exhibit items from the archive and, and make all the materials available to scholars. And um, so tell me what you see as the important distinction between a museum and a center. Yes. You know, we, we might be splitting hairs here, though. I think there is an important difference. Uh, you know, the museum, for all the absolute brilliance and importance of, of that model of cultural institution, can perhaps be a little one-sided. You know, we, the museum, are laying out materials, and this is what you, the audience, should think and how you should interpret. Uh, and, and it can be a little one-sided. We wanted to do something um, that was more about creating a dialogue, um, creating a space where various different perspectives and voices and communities could come together uh, with the center as a convening uh, force, if you will, uh, that can invite in and, and bring together 
uh, again, uh, just a host of different perspectives. Uh, we want things to happen here. We want this to be a living place. This is, after all, a center uh, devoted to a living artist, which is rather unusual, right. uh, both within the music world and, and, you know, a more standard visual art world where you don't usually have the benefit of seeing you know, the oof, the entire body of work of an artist until unfortunately they are often long gone. Uh, this is something that's in the present moment. It will continue to change. It will continue to adapt. We will add to the archive. We will find ways to make it come alive. And, and so center just for us felt more inclusive, more inviting and somehow more true to the figure at the heart of all of us. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting distinction that you made uh, given that, it, 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 yes, it's a, it's a center, um, predicated upon the, you know, the work in the ongoing work of a living person, as opposed yes. to a museum almost being a, you know, a, a place of just archives, uh, and honoring in most cases, um, the past. Um, sure. how did you come to be the uh, director of the Bob Dylan Center? Well, um, I am uh, new to Tulsa. I, I had been in the Bay Area for 35 plus years uh, doing work in this field in a variety of capacities, uh, working at museums, curating exhibitions, uh, working quite extensively in uh, the film festival world and in film exhibition. Uh, music has always been my other primary love. Uh, I, I've grown up a Dylan fanatic. Um, also along the way, I got very involved in fundraising for nonprofits. So when I heard about this project I, some years ago, because this has been in the works for quite some time, of course, I took a keen interest, never thinking in the, in the moment that there would be a role for me here, um, but only that, wow, this is going to be incredible. Whenever it opens, I'm taking vacation from whatever I'm doing, and I'm going to go out and check this out. Well, as, as it turned out, I got to know some of the folks who are behind this endeavor. I had mentioned the Kaiser Family Foundation. Uh, there's an umbrella organization called the American Song Archives that oversees now this new Dillon Center and the pre-existing Woody Guthrie Center and some other collections and archives that have been amassed. And I started a series of conversations. Uh, there was then a formal interview process once a job description was put out, a national search for candidates. Candidates. Uh, my phone kept ringing. We kept continuing the conversation. I came out to Tulsa for a visit. And shortly after that, I think all parties were convinced that this was a good match. So you so described I, yourself as a, as a Dylan fanatic. How does that that being a Dylan fanatic, how does that work with or does it ever maybe cloud your um, objectivity in a sense about being the center director, given that, you know, the breadth of Dylan fanaticism <laughs> ranges now for what, 70 years of fans sure. or, or, or close to. And, and given that there are. You know, there's so many manifestations of the man. There's the man, there's the myth, there's the music. And so, like, do you ever find that you've got to kind of check your own passion in a sense? I think on the contrary, that it, it, it that passion lends itself to ideally me doing my job the best I can, uh, because I can bring what I feel is a, a pretty deep knowledge of the subject area to the work I'll be doing as a curator and as running day to day operations and in talking to donors. I think that that enthusiasm comes across. 
uh, as, as very genuine, as very heartfelt. And, uh, you know, so I might have the, oh my God, look at this. It's the handwritten lyrics to Tangled Up in Blue. I see that as a fan, but I'm also simultaneously seeing at it as someone who's, you know, among a staff here that is making informed decisions about how to display items, the narratives and stories that we're trying to tell around the display, what sort of context we want to set for these artifacts. So, no, I, I don't think it gets in the way. Um, I, I, I hope that it adds to what I'm able to bring to this both professionally and personally. What kind of participation, uh, if any, has Bob Dylan himself taken in the uh, sort of the creation and the curating uh, of, of the uh, center? Beyond uh, making the agreement to have the archives acquired, and these archives, I, I should say, are give or take around 100,000 items. Those are both physical and digital items. So there is quite a bit here. Uh, so once the agreement was made, uh, Dylan essentially gave this endeavor his blessing. He then did something very special for us. There's an aspect of Dylan's artwork that I feel people know less about, which is that he is a metal worker. Uh, they, folks might know by now that he's a very accomplished painter, but I think fewer know that um, he works with metal and creates these incredible sculptures, which usually refers to as gates. Mm -hmm. So he created a site-specific piece for us. And as visitors come into what I think is a very welcoming main entry here at the center, they are greeted with a 16 foot tall metal work made by Dylan, which I think of as kind of a portal into Dylan world, if you will. Yeah. And so kind of a metaphor too, because you've got the creativity, but you've also got the a 16 foot tall metal gate is a little uh, foreboding in terms of well, don't try to get too close. <laughs> it's a, well, maybe that's still in saying I'm on one side of the gate and you, the visitor or listener, are on the other. Uh, but it's easily traversed. You know, it's just a sculptural piece on one side of the entry that I think is quite impressive. It's also very playful. Visually, it has wit. It's uh, I think it also refers to American industry and the in the pieces of iron and scrap metal. That, that Dylan's chosen to incorporate. Uh, in any case, um, he gave us all his blessing. He made this wonderful gate for us. And beyond that, you know, it's it's much more, I believe, in Dylan's character to look forward uh, than it is to look back. And so while he did save all this material, uh, you know, he has famously espoused to be don't look back philosophy. We can go back to D.A. Pennebaker's title of the, of the great documentary from the mid 60s on Dylan's tour through the UK. Uh, you know, he's. Dare I imagine what Dylan is thinking, but I believe that he is more interested in tomorrow night's concert, in next week's recording session, in getting back into his studio to paint or to work with metal than he is in going through the... Uh, you know, the making of the O oh Mercy album or or looking again at the lyrics to the Blood on the Track songs, whatever it might be. Um, so he has not been involved in the day-to-day -day operations, in any of the decision-making around how the exhibitions would be put together. He's really given us a, a good amount of trust uh, to just do right by him, you know, and, and, and we're, we're able to define what that means. You mentioned, um, a hundred thousand items. Give us a sense of the range 
of the nature of these items? Sure thing. So a lot of papers, um, as you might imagine, uh, with handwritten lyrics, and these to me are some of the most fascinating uh, artifacts that we have here, because what you really get is the creative process in a way that I think we've never been able to see with Dylan before. He, he and his team have done a wonderful job of putting out what's known as the bootleg series. Sure. So over the years, we have heard earlier versions of songs, uh, rough drafts of things, early mixes, but we've never seen the actual notebooks in which these lyrics were being written down, crossed out. Uh, we have a lot of interactive displays that bring these materials to life where you can uh, scroll through on touch screens and look at the way, for example, uh, Dylan changed the lyrics again and again and again to a song like Joker Man from 1983 from the Infidels album, mm-hmm. um, where there is as many as 10 or 12 versions of different stanzas of that song. Or we have a notebook with 40 pages of lyrics to the song Dignity. This is a song he was working on for the 1989 album, Oh Mercy. It seemed to really have him in its grip. We now see this whole notebook where he's just tearing through, you know, what what astoundingly lovely, complex, funny, profound lines and words, and then somehow they're not cutting cutting it for him, and he's crossing out more. And after that whole process, what does he do? He doesn't even include the song on the album. Uh, you know, it just wasn't working for him somehow. How very so, Dylan. <laughs> yes. So there are all these papers. There are, there are hundreds and hundreds of photographs that have not been seen. There are home movies. Um, of course, many, many, many recordings. And what we've been able to do with the recordings is break them out into what are called stems. This is really another word for tracks. So, for example, if you're listening to like a Rolling Stone, for example, we have a recording studio experience here where you as the visitor can turn dials and push levers and in a sense, play engineer or producer. And you can pull up and isolate just Al Cooper's organ, for example, from like a Rolling Stone. Or if you want, you can focus just on Dylan's uh, uh, decisions that he was making in the studio as to how to sing a particular line. Really listen to the timber and the tone of that voice. You know, it's such an easy criticism over the years. Oh, Dylan can't sing. He's got that high nasal voice. Well, hopefully that has, has been put to rest as a misconception. I mean, here is someone who has used his voice as a singing, as an instrument, um, as cleverly in as decidedly as he has done every other element of his work. He's just masterfully phrasing and rephrasing things, um, emphasizing different syllables to just ring out every possible meaning of a word or a line. And so when you're able in the studio uh, here that we have at the center to bring up those, uh, those vocals, I think it's really revelatory. Yeah. Tell me about uh, I, I read something about a pretty unique jukebox that exists in the center. Share with our listeners what went into kind of uh, curating the selections in there. Certainly. So we, we knew from the get go that you know we wanted to have all different elements in the center. Uh, focused, of course, uh, very heavily on Dylan and the materials from our archives here. But we wanted to bring in other voices, other perspectives. And one way we're doing that is with the jukebox that you're referencing. And this is an uh, uh, entirely workable uh, jukebox. And you can 
press buttons and pull up your selection. And what's particularly special is our uh, first uh, guest curator of the jukebox is Elvis Costello, who for me is the closest up there to Dylan that we have, who, you know, for uh, going on 45, 50 years now, um, I think has been operating at an extraordinarily high level of quantity and quality, uh, encyclopedic musical knowledge and ability. And he's applied his sensibility uh, to choosing 160 songs for the jukebox. Um, And he's done it in a very clever way, which is the way Elvis does everything. He's looked at triads of songs, triads of songs, where he'll look at something uh, that might have influenced a Dylan song, um, say something by Merle Haggard or, um, uh, you know, uh, Guthrie himself or whoever it might be, or a blues great like Muddy Waters. And then so you can hear that and you can hear the Dylan song where you can kind of trace how Dylan was you know, taking different elements from those earlier songs and incorporating them into his own. And then you have songs that followed in Dylan's footsteps, by artists that followed in Dylan's footsteps. So you don't have to listen to the selections on the jukebox that way, but you can, thanks to Elvis, find all these interesting through lines. That's interesting. Is there is there a plan for uh, having t- some type of a um, scheduled rotating of those musical crops by another such curator? Certainly, yes. And we've got... Um, uh, you know, you get, I'm sure we can all draw up our own wish lists of, you know, who should curate the jukebox next. And I, and I think we'll have some really wonderful surprises in store, uh, both for that and for a lot of other elements in the in the uh, center. For example, um, in the Columbia Records Gallery, which is a large space on our first floor, uh, we go very heavily into the writing, recording, producing, performance, and afterlives of six particular Dylan songs. These include Joker Man, which I mentioned earlier, uh, Tangled Up in Blue, uh, Chimes of Freedom, Not Dark Yet, that, that just beautiful haunting song from Time Out of Mind, um, and The Man in Me from New Morning. And so you can really go deep into these six songs, but you know, give us six months or so and we'll have another half dozen classics or perhaps somewhat more obscure songs. And there's so many materials in the archive that we can draw from that we can really tell um, very in-depth stories about each of each of these songs. Yep. So we'll change those up. We have uh, a gallery space on the second floor of the center called the Creators Gallery. And this is where we will have a series of rotating exhibitions that feature the work of other artists. Um, those who might have a very clear cut connection to Dylan, those maybe slightly more tangential, but there will be a lot of different work there. Um, if I may, I'll, I'll describe briefly the first rotating exhibition in the Creators Gallery, uh, which is um, a retrospective of photographs by Jerry Schatzberg. Schatzberg was a, um, a key figure in photography in the mid 60s. He's still going at it at age 94, wonderfully active in, in New York still. But at the time, he and Dylan did a number of photo shoots together. Um, so we have some incredible photos from 65, 66, and all sorts of other luminaries from the world of culture and high society and fashion passed through Schatzberg studio at 25th and Park in New York. Um, so there's a, a really wonderful selection of those works. Wow. When So when, when the, the center was coming together and 
Uh, you know, you had mentioned earlier, you know, working with donors and I'm sure there's a board, et cetera. What has your experience been in terms of what version of Dylan do you <laughs> find that people um, m- most either associate with or want to try to access through something like the center? Because there really are so many versions of the man. There, as he said on his most recent album, he kicked off the Rough and Rowdy Ways album with a song called I Contain Multitudes. Yes. yes. Of, of course, Tip of the hat all to Walt back to Walt Whitman, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and really in that lineage of American letters, I think in, in so many ways. Um, so yes, there are as many Dylans as there are visitors to the center. Uh, and I think that everyone has had a different point of entry into this incredible body of work. So, you know, I was a precocious six-year-old who had the uh, the Milton Glaser uh, graphic poster of Dylan with the rainbow flowing hair uh, on my wall, you know, as a, as a kid. I don't know what I was making of the music yet at the time, but I knew that something visually appealed to me. Sure. Of course, as I grew up, you know, the, the songs themselves started to make sense. And, and they grow with you at different stages in your life. You know, they might mean different things. So we've had visitors come in or donors or board members, as you say, all of our constituents um, who seem to relate, you know, to the body of work overall. But then they, they do have maybe specific periods that resonate most emotionally with them. You know, it might be blowing in the wind for someone who was there at the, at the very get go. Sure. Uh, you know, we've had folks who said I, I, I was sitting in those coffee houses in Greenwich Village and I went to the first concert at Town Hall. And and, you know, I know Dylan is the folky, you know, there were folks who we've heard from people who were at the Newport Folk Festival when Dylan famously, quote unquote, went electric sure. and, you know, decided it was time to make some noise and plugged in and played with the band, uh, you know, who he then later went on to record the basement tapes with and so much else. Um, other folks, you know, are, are more familiar with, say, Blood on the Tracks from the mid 70s. Uh, Time Out of Mind from 1997, that really brought Dylan a whole new audience. It's funny, at the time that was called, being called a late career masterpiece. Exactly. Well, 25 years have gone by yeah. uh, and, you know, and, and we're still chasing after Dylan and, and there's been a string of incredible records in the last 25 years. So um, I, it varies. You know, what's nice, though, is that we're able to revisit again by drawing from the archival materials. We can take a deeper look at something like the, the somewhat infamous born again period. Mm-hmm, sure. This was when Dylan, you know, who, who any time anyone tried to uh, uh, define him or or put him in a corner, you know, would escape any sort of easy definition. You know, folk singer. I'm no folk singer or, you know, voice of a generation. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just saying for myself, whatever it might have been. The, the ultimate iconoclast in so many ways, here he is embracing, you know, perhaps the <laughs> the most mainstream belief system of all. And that threw people so heavily. And, and in a way, the message around all that and the media frenzy around that, I think, got in the way of people hearing the music clearly. <laughs> but if you go back to records like Slow Train Coming or Saved or Shot of Love, I mean, there's, there's amazing stuff there. So um, I hope that people will, you know, take the time to revisit periods of Dylan's work that maybe were overlooked in the initial run and 
there's just so much of it. So you, you kind of have to pick and choose or, or you go from start to finish from the first album to the most recent, whatever it might be. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, particular phases of his career that people might have discovered him during. And then I imagine there's a contingent that they actually discovered him probably in the last 20 years through some of the soundtrack work, whether it's <laughs> Big Lebowski or the Wonder Boys or or I've I've heard a lot of his stuff on, you know, what's referred to as prestige cable <laughs> the, sure. um, the premium premium stations like hbo and so forth well the big lebowski i think is a great example of how a song can find a new life and a new audience when it's placed within a new context so this is you're referring to uh, the song the man in me yeah. which is on originally on dylan's 1970 album new morning it was somewhat of a deep cut i mean a really lovely song but you know it didn't get radio play the way that something like lady lay did around that same time period uh, and it was you know maybe a, a, a more of a deep fan favorite and then t-bone burnett who has impeccable taste as a music supervisor among so much else he plucked that song from new morning and and in included it in the soundtrack to the Coen Brothers film, The Big Lebowski. And there you have Jeff Bridges as the dude, uh, you know, abiding, as he says. And of course, that became such a cult hit. And then suddenly you have all these new listeners for The Man and Me, yeah. uh, who really took that song to heart uh, and associate it with the film. And hopefully it got them to go back and, and, you know, discover some other Dylan stuff. But we're really interested in what happens with a song as it's just out in the world. Uh, because, of course, you know, Dylan, like any artist, He's creating these things. He's putting them out there. And then really we as listeners or as viewers, we're, we're completing the, the, the story. We're, we're continuing the dialogue with it, if you will. Um, and, and that's a nice uh, example of how that, that works and how through the archival materials, we can trace the genesis of a song, you know, all, all the way from its uh, initial draft on a piece of paper or, or typewritten, uh, typed out, uh, or scrawled on, on hotel stationery, you know, to its recording and then to, it just have sort of finding a life for itself out in the world. I have a feeling I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Any sense of whether the man's going to drop in someday? Oh, he's here in the next office today. Uh, <laughs> Dylan has not uh, visited. He, I, I believe, is well aware that he has an open invitation. Uh, you know, again, for some of the reasons we mentioned earlier about him not really having an interest in, you know, helping make decisions about what to show or how to run the center. I, I think, you know, and again, it, it, you don't want to try to second guess Dylan, but perhaps this would be a little bit embarrassing. You know, think about walking into a, 50, a 29,000 square foot facility and seeing emblems of your life, uh, you know, laid out for all to see that that must be a little, little cringe inducing. Um, and, and again, it's just seemingly more in his nature to look ahead and to not look back. But, you know, that said, I, 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 I have a, a bit of a vision of maybe it'll be some rainy afternoon on a, on a, I don't know, a Thursday in October and it starts to get a little chilly here in, in, in Tulsa and, and we're on tornado watch or whatever it might be. <laughs> and, and maybe a, you know, a, 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 a stooped figure in a, in a dark hoodie will walk in and, and sure enough, we'll see that it's Bob himself. But yeah, it's you know, probably a safe bet that if it happens, it's not going to happen at a 
time or in a fashion that you would predict. Precisely. You know, he, he and his band did play in town just over three weeks ago and we really weren't expecting a visit. It's not like he was going to call us up for coffee and a bagel. Uh, it's, it's, you know, just not his way that said, you know, there are, there are folks in Dylan's camp who we know well and who have been absolutely wonderful partners with us. And I believe that they're at least letting him know at opportune moments. Yeah. You know, they're, they're doing right by you in Tulsa. So I know that the center uh, has opened in the past couple of weeks. You and I are speaking in late May. Um, uh, Is it currently now open for the public also? It absolutely is. We initially kicked off with a VIP opening weekend uh, just as a thank you to our donors who have been so enormously generous in uh, of spirit and support. Uh, so um, folks who really helped us get the doors open uh, got the first sneak peek. We had a series of concerts, three nights of three Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, starting with Mavis Staples, then the next night, Patti Smith, and then oh, wow. the aforementioned Elvis Costello himself on night three. Uh, so that we really set the bar high for ourselves. You sure did. Uh, Is that a a plan to have ongoing um, musical presentations too? Absolutely. We, we want to present concerts. We want to present film screenings. We will have writers here, other musicians, uh, all sorts of public programs that uh, will also you know, help keep the center lively and um, I believe keep folks coming back, not just locals for whom I believe this is really an important addition to the city. Sure. Uh, but I think that the center, you know, will help put Tulsa on the map in a, in a different way. There's a, a fantastically active and creative artistic community here. I, th- I think waiting to be discovered by the wider world. So I'm really looking forward to folks coming in, maybe they're making the trip for the Dillon Center and having a great time here and being surprised and maybe shedding a tear as I've seen some visitors do already. Uh, And then they'll be able to see uh, everything else that Tulsa has on offer. Well, it is uh, just gone to the top of my bucket list, that's for sure. Uh, So I had been speaking with Stephen Jenkins, who is the director of the just open Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, And if listeners want to find out more about the center and all that it has to offer, where should we point them? Please visit our website, which has all of our up-to-date information, including opening hours, which are 10 to 6, uh, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Wednesday through Sunday. And that uh, website is BobDylanCenter.com. Fantastic. You can follow us on all the usual social media channels as well. Excellent. Stephen, thank you again. This has been a great chat. Michael, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you in Tulsa.